and the Pharisees and the scribes were grumbling and saying, This fellow welcomes sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. Then Jesus said, There was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that will belong to me. So he divided his property between them. A few days later, the younger son gathered all he had and traveled to a distant country, and there he squandered his proper property in dissolute living. When he had spent everything, a severe famine took place throughout that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed the pigs. He would gladly have filled himself with the pods that the pigs were eating, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, and he said, How many of my father's hired hands have bread enough and to spare? But here I am, dying of hunger. I will get up and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me like one of your hired hands. So he set off and went to his father. But while he was still far off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran and put his arms around him and kissed him. Then the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against you and heaven. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, Quickly, bring out a robe, the best one, and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet, and get the fatted calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and was found. And they began to celebrate. Now his elder son was in the field, and when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. He called one of the slaves and asked what was going on. He replied, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fatted calf, because he has got him back safe and sound. Then he became angry and refused to go in. His father came out and began to plead with him. But he answered his father, Listen, for all these years I have been working like a slave for you. Now you've never disobeyed your command, but you yet you have never given me even a younger a young goat, so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours com, came back, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. Then the father said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice, because this brother of yours was dead and has come to life. He was lost and has. creativity, your hearing, the children, through the music gloriously displayed, for prayers uttered on our behalf. Oh God, in this time of hearing such a familiar song, a familiar tale, give us ears to hear 
And may our hearts be changed. Amen. This week, many of you have already participated in some small groups, part of the Lenten emphasis and our Dawn initiative. And this very week, we ask people to practice the discipline of confession. So I just want to know, how's that going? Um, things that we've lost 
from a lost contact, you know, and just this gripping, horrid feeling of not being able to see, or a lost cell phone in our day and time is a, a true tragedy. Um, lost keys. How many times have we misplaced the keys? Or in my place, a lost engagement ring, which I still have not recovered, nor Michael, for that matter. Alas, <coughs> today, I want to push this a little further because the Father does. In fact, though he uses the language lost and found, the most powerful language that claimed my attention was this son was dead, but now is alive. Which is why I opened with this Capone quote that confession, though important, it doesn't work like a medicine leading to recovery, but rather it calls us to die. So I start with a question. Can something dead come back to life? What do you think? You good Christian people are supposed to say, absolutely. <laughs> That's sort of the, the gospel message, right? I, I have to interject. I couldn't tell this sermon and thinking about this without the Monty Python joke running. How many of you watch Monty Python? I have, I've told you I have a little bit of a sick and twisted humor, but um, this scene where he's like, he's not really dead. You know what I'm talking about? Well, <laughs> for those of you who know, great. I'll leave it at that. Um, but essentially, the claim, of course, according to science, is when something is truly dead, it doesn't come back to life. But according to Jesus, and because of Jesus, well, that's a very different story. So here he is, a man who had two sons. But notice that our good lectionary folk begin this by telling about tax collectors and sinners eating with Jesus or listening to Jesus. And the Pharisees, those mutterers to the side, are saying, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Maybe this ticked Jesus off enough to lead into one of the most powerful parables he told. He made it very clear with this particular parable that there is joy in the presence of God over one sinner who repents. The Pharisees missed the point entirely. I, I, love, I just imagine them listening and not realizing that they were in the sinner category. You know, they were putting those tax collectors in that category. They're the lost. And of course... Here's Jesus saying, no, you're the dead. From the very beginning, the moment the son asks for his share of the inheritance, and I, I sometimes wish we didn't have just our English translation, because really, I'll tell you, this whole sermon came alive when I noticed the word, the literal word in Greek. If you'll look... <clears throat> in your text, in verse 12. The younger of them, of the son, says to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that will belong to me. So he divided his property before between them. The little literal word property there is bios, or bios, bio, which means what? 
life. He literally, it literally says, so he divided his life between them. So from the very beginning of this story, life and death are at stake. And of course, we know that usually an inheritance from a parent is not given unless they are dead. So the very act of the son to request this inheritance is as if he was treating his father like he was dead. And here comes the good news. God who brings back to life those things that are dead. We have a picture of a God placed in a father figure. Someone who even with an ungrateful two sons is able to treat them with unconditional love. But how does this happen? Stay with me, even though this is such a familiar story. This son, this younger son, who probably is no older than a teenager, okay? Probably we think that because he's not married. And when he gathers this inheritance, he cashes it in, okay? He, he gathers, and it's not as if the, fa- the father could go to the bank, but rather he's selling off tracts of his land or cattle to give to the son. And he leaves for the far country. Ah, the far country always looks so tempting, doesn't it? It always looks better than home. The grass is always greener. It's always greener at a distance. Then, as we know, the younger son squanders all his money in wild living, ends up in Gentile territory, which is bad news. All right? Feeding pigs, even worse for a Jew... <coughs> And wishing he could eat the pig pods. I would venture to say he is now dead to himself. And then that glorious line, he comes to himself. Life, life begins with coming to oneself. And the only way we come back to life, as somebody said at Free For All, is recognizing our brokenness recognizing our need for God and that we ain't God. Of course, the son, as also said at Free For All, doesn't begin with a great sense of contrition, but rather his sense of hunger. It's his hunger that makes him desperate, saying, man, why am I suffering when over there at my father's house the higher hands have it better? And yet, though, it's not necessarily clear whether or not he has a true sense of repentance, there is a little bit of an implication that he does say, I'm going to set out, say, Father, I have sinned against heaven and sinned against you. A line of confession. Including his final part of his rehearsed speech, I am no longer worthy to be called your son, but make me like the one of your hired, like one of your hired I think it's interesting. One commentator points out that the prophets of Israel always spoke of of repentance as returning. Repentance as returning. Returning back to a God that they had forsaken and forgotten. Returning back after wandering away to other gods. Returning back after realizing usually what they lost. I think the turn of this parable is in the return. 
Joachim Jeremiah says, Repentance means learning to say Abba again, putting one's whole trust in the Heavenly Father, returning to the Father's house, and returning to the Father's arms. See, the younger son could have come to himself, and this is my argument, and never returned home. Do you agree? He could have. He could have moved back to a nearby Jewish territory, reclaimed his good name, gotten a job, lived an upright moral life. But without the returning home, I contend that he would always bear a mark of shame. But it's the complete act of returning that redemption and restoration follows. Let me tell you a great story, I think, that highlights this. A woman was reminiscing about her father, and she chronicles this. She said that when she was young, she was very close to her father. The time she experienced this closeness the most, they said, was when they had these big family gatherings with all the aunts and uncles and cousins. Y'all know some of these? I know. I've heard your stories. Oh, the, the fun of family gatherings, right? Well, at some point in this particular family gathering, I'm sure it's a little different than yours, someone would pull out the old record player, hello, and put on polka records. <laughs> that didn't happen at yours? And the family would dance. Eventually, she says, someone would put on the beer barrel polka. And when the music of the beer barrel polka played, say that, Ten times faster. Her father would come up to her, tap her on her shoulder, and say, I believe this is our dance. And they would dance. One time, though, when she was a teenager, gosh, what is it about those teenage years? I'm not looking forward to that. And in one of those teenaged moods, and the beer barrel polka began to play, when her father tapped her on her shoulder and she said, or he said, I believe this is our dance. She snaps at him. Don't touch me. Leave me alone. And her father turned away and never asked her to dance again. She writes in her chronicles, Our relationship was difficult and all through the teen years. And when I would come home late from a date, my father would be sitting there in his chair, half asleep, wearing an old bathrobe, and I would snarl at him. What do you think you're doing? He would look at me with sad eyes and say, I was just waiting on you. When I went away to college, the woman wrote, I was so glad to get out of his house and away from him, and for years, I never communicated with him. But as I grew older, I began to miss him. One day, I decided to go to the next family gathering, and when I was there, somebody put on the beer barrel I drew a deep breath, walked over to my father, tapped him on the shoulder, and said, I believe this is our dance. He turned toward me and said, I've been waiting on you. <laughs> Standing at the center of our life is the God who says, everything I have is yours. All that I am is for you, and I've been waiting on you. We can't just come to ourselves 
We have to return home. Of course, I'm speaking metaphorically, though. In this story, the son actually gets up, arises, and goes to the father. And the highlight of this whole story, the key is, and if you don't get any other image, I hope that this one is the day, as one sermon title I read, the day God showed his legs. This is why they say that. As you know, the father is waiting for the son, and he begins to run. And running for, for a man of means and of age was a loss of dignity. It was unbecoming, to say the least. And yet this image of this father running, and, and as, if, as if he's been waiting every day since the son had left. He runs, and not only does he run, he embraces him, which the literal language there is to fall on his neck. And he kisses him. Again, without the fullness of the scriptural story, it just it lands a little flat. But if we remember the, the, the rich narrative of our Hebrew scriptures, remember David kissing Absalom as a sign of forgiveness, or Esau falling on his neck and kissing Jacob. And my favorite, favorite part of the story is that the younger son doesn't even get to finish his rehearsed speech. It really doesn't even matter, this may be scandalous, if he was repentant or not. The father didn't have time to find out. But the fact that he came, the fact that he came was enough to bring this celebration of homecoming. For the father puts on the robe, the ring, and the sandals. And you know what I love about this? This wasn't a private little ceremony. The robe and the ring and the sandals are kind of a, a way to say to the village, I am publicly reinstating my son. I'm not going to hide him back in the corner in the shadow. I am proud of my son. That's what that means, this public way of reinstating this son. That takes guts. But he didn't care. And, he, and he, as you know, the last part is he kills this fattened calf away. They didn't eat <coughs> especially red meat on a regular basis. This was a time of celebration if they ate meat. And so the celebration continues. And yet, the culminating verse, the one that brings to life and death, he says, the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And you may ask, well, what made him dead? Why does he use that language? He was dead because he had broken the relationship with the family. He was dead because he had forgotten who and whose he was. He was dead because he was living in Gentile territory. He was dead because he was among pigs. He was dead because he had dishonored his father. But even with all those strikes against him, his father says, You are alive. A great writer has said, and tell me if you think this is true, we usually learn to demand our rights before we learn to value our relationships. I think that's true for all of us. Think about it. We talk a lot about civil rights, 
but what about civil relationships? By returning home, the younger son is beginning to step into a new relationship. But then there's this elder son. Now that's a whole other story, and I don't have time to, to unpack that, to give it what it needs. But let me say this. Though he had everything, he had access to his father, of course we know he was, resentment, he was resentful to the wayward brother. His heart is cold. There's no joy that his brothers return. In fact, he says, this son of yours. Notice there's never any language about brotherhood. It's always this son of yours came back. And I would argue, again, back to relationship, that there's more than being right. Because he's right. The son was wayward. The son took the inheritance. He had every right to be angry. He was right on all accounts. But there's more than being right. There's being in relationship. More than being right is being in relationship. And the elder son didn't have it. And so finally I conclude the younger and of course the older brother are both dead, had been dead. But one realizes it and the other doesn't. This image of being dead, like driftwood at sea, presents a, a very strange image for most of us who find ourselves always on the go, always hopefully on the, the thought that we're denying death on some level. Isn't that why we stay so busy and so active and so healthy? I would say at the heart of the Christian message, we believe that without Christ, we are dead, right? We're dead in our sin. We're dead in our self-righteousness, both sides of the brother. Both sons live within us. Things are screwed up. Can I say that? Even religion is dead. Everything is dead without Christ. That's why my favorite St. Francis line, it is in dying that we are born. We have to die every day to be reborn. Do you think the younger son didn't have days where he went back to his old lifestyle? What happened to that younger son? Do we ever think about that? But our Lenten call, and this is why I harp on this, because we have to practice it in community. We have to practice confessing to each other. We don't do that naturally, much less confess to God. That only on Easter, March 31st is Easter, it's really early, right? The only way we can march down this, what is this? Uh, aisle, thank you. <coughs> the only way we can march down this aisle and put flowers in the cross is if we have done the work of confession. How can we celebrate the joy of life if we haven't realized that we have been dead? So providence, like the younger son, let us return to God. May we return to God every morning and hear the words of our God, who is not father or mother, but who is wholly other, but
but more loving than a father or mother could be, who says, you were once dead, but now you are alive. I end You know me with a poem. Hope I can get through it. Hound of Heaven, Francis Thompson. I fled from God. And by the way, we're not talking about hardcore addictions and drugs, although some of you may have done those things too. But we're, we're all the prodigal, right? When we're not thinking of those categories. We've wandered from God, have we not? So let me start again. I fled from God down the nights and down the days. I fled from God down the arches of the years. I fled from God down the labyrinth of my mind. In the midst of tears, I hid. Under running laughter, I hid from God. Up visted slopes, I sped, shot precipitated over chasmed fears. But those strong feet of God came after with unhurrying chase and unperturbed pace, with constant speed and divine instancy. And a voice more persistent than the feet spoke and said, You are my precious one. I will not let you go. Yes, this is the way God is. So persistent, so diligent, so untiring in his pursuit until all things that are dead are alive again.